we're going to be the 23rd Psalm today. And uh, I am reading out of King, New King James Version, so it's going to be a little different if you're used to CSB, uh, but I feel like that's close to the... I like the language of the older translations and the Psalms, so we're going to be doing that. <clears throat> Psalms 23. It's a familiar one to us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So maybe some of your headings in your Bible above this psalm might say the good shepherd. And that certainly is true that this psalm really points us to Jesus. And as we dig into that, you're going to see how similar Jesus is to this psalm and how he's a shepherd and how he refers to himself as the good shepherd. And all the qualities that are here are the same qualities that we see in Jesus in the New Testament. But I entitled this sermon, My Shepherd. Um, and the reason I did that is I think it's important for us to see how personal God is to us. It's important to understand that we have a God uh, who is very personal to those who belong to him. And so we don't have a remote God who's off in the distance, who's put us on this earth to walk around and live and die. We have a God who wants to be involved in our lives, to give us instruction, to give us guidance, and to be with us every step of the way. And most importantly, we have a God that loves us. And so uh, the last sermon, it's been a few weeks, so I don't expect anybody to remember, uh, but I had talked about how I believe that the key that stood between us and revival was that we need to learn and realize that God is in control and to let go of all the fear and everything around us that's keeping us from moving forward in God. And I think that is a key element to revival. Uh, but as I've studied this passage and dug into it, like I realized that I was wrong. And that doesn't happen very often. Uh, but uh, don't, don't talk to my wife about that. She'll tell you something different. But <laughs> no, I, I'm more uncomfortable admitting I'm wrong. But um, I believe now, more than ever, that the key to revival is really realizing how much God loves us. That God's love, when we recognize it and we experience it in our lives, changes our hearts and causes us to strive to live for him. Causes us to turn away. Causes us to stop fearing over the things that are going wrong in the world. It really just changes everything when we realize how much God loves us. And so I've heard this psalm a million times growing up. And it's always been a flowery, lovely song, psalm to read. And there's a lot of words there that are metaphors. And it's a beautiful picture of things. And it goes great on a thinking of you card. Uh, but... As I begin to study this and really dive into the metaphors that's going on here that David is using, it really began to change the, the way that I saw this psalm. I needed this because I needed to see God's love clearer than I have in the past. And it was important for me to do that. Uh, in a class that I recently took on interpreting scripture, it told us that a, a, a passage or uh, something that's written in the Bible cannot mean what it never meant to the original audience. 
And so sometimes when we come to reading scripture, we have our way of looking at things, the 21st century American way of looking at things, and we miss what they saw and what they were talking about. And so the more I dove into that stuff, it changed the way that I saw this. And so I'm hoping that all of us leave today realizing more and more just how much God loves us. And so... Um, I think in order for anything to change in our lives, we have to feel the weight of God's love. And there's a difference between knowing that God loves us and realizing it. It becomes real to us. And so his love for us is far greater than any way that we can love each other or him. So it's important to see that we don't just have a God who loves the world. We have a God that loves you, a God that loves me, and he's a very intimate and personal God. Most of the Psalms throughout the book of Psalms allows us to connect to God in a very individualized way. We have corporate Psalms, which is what we read together this morning. That's when we read something together uh, that's a Psalm that's leading us toward God. But we have many Psalms that were written for us by many psalmists so that we can connect to him personally on a personal individual in a personal basis <laughs> um, there are times where we don't have words to say uh, when we're grateful and we don't know what to say when we're sad or when we're angry and we don't know what to say and so psalms can often help us express those emotions to god they are gifts given to us by god that we give back to him when we speak them to him uh, to relay our feelings towards him in a form of prayers Psalm paint, this psalm specifically paints a picture of who God is. For those people who say that the God in the Old Testament is a different God than the God in the New Testament, the odds are is they have not taken time to focus on psalms like this. In fact, if they believe that the God in the New Testament is more loving than the God in the Old Testament, uh, then I would suggest that they have spent little time, if any, reading the Old Testament. If they have read it, they don't understand it. Because God's love and grace is all over the Old Testament. Starting with his response to Adam and Eve when they disobeyed him and they sinned against him, he responded in love and grace and mercy with a promise, all the way to the prophets where God speaks through the prophets and promises to one day restore things to the way that he intended them to be. And so his grace, his love, and his mercy is all over the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And so this psalm points us to Jesus, as I said before, as Jesus declares to us that he is the good shepherd. This is the perfect picture of who God and Jesus is, because really they're one and the same. Um, so if we want to see what it looks like for the Lord to be our shepherd, we only really have to look at Jesus and the way he lived and the way he acted and what he taught us and how he's guiding those who belong to him to live the right way in life. He gives us a lot of understanding of what this passage means. And so I want to start off with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So David is saying, if he's saying that the Lord is his shepherd, what does that say about himself? He's saying he's a sheep. And so a sheep is a part of the flock of the shepherd or under the care of the shepherd, which tells us that David belongs to God. And therefore, this psalm is for those who belong to God and who are his sheep. And that's the understanding that we should have as we go through this, as we read this psalm, is that this is for those who belong to God. Most people reject God. They reject his presence and his guidance in this life. And so can't really say this psalm if we don't experience that kind of relationship with him and mean it. But if you do mean it, if you have been brought into his flock through Jesus, then you are his sheep. And so I've heard a lot about sheep and, and, and some people, I had to research a little bit while I was putting this together, and some people claim that sheep are bright animals. They do a lot of, they're, they're kind of smart, 
But I've heard a lot more stories as I've, as I kind of studied from the perspective of a shepherd that they're not the brightest animals. Um, I looked up an article that a shepherd had written about this, and he said um, that they can often just appear dead for no reason at all. There's no obvious reason as to why it's dead. There's no parasite. There's nothing that's obvious about how it's been killed. Um, and oftentimes, if a sheep is not in the company of other sheep, then it'll just wander around in circles without eating until it just dies. And so they need the company of other sheep. They need a shepherd. And sometimes sheep just walk away from their newborns if they don't feel like taking care of it um, for no real reason other than they just don't want to take care of it. Uh, the, the article that I read, he talked about one of his sheep, how it went to get some food in a pile of wood and it got its head kind of stuck. And instead of backing out, it went further and further in and got completely stuck and then, was, and then died. So um, There was an instance in Turkey, and this made headline news uh, back in 2015, that 1,500 sheep followed one sheep off of a cliff. And 450 of them were piled on top of each other dead. Uh, it kind of made it sound like the other ones weren't uh, all dead. So, um, so we see by this account and by what this shepherd had to say and what other accounts in the world of what sheep and how they kind of behave, we see that they're not the brightest animals, that they kind of head towards danger. They're not really, uh, without guidance, they kind of head towards what's not good for them. And so it doesn't sound like they're the brightest animals. So when we consider that the Bible calls us sheep, that God calls people sheep, it's not entirely a compliment it's not something that we should be okay with, uh, but that's how we are. We as humans are weak and vulnerable, and every human is like a sheep. We constantly find ourselves going in the wrong direction, wandering around in circles, making the same stupid mistakes until we either die or the shepherd finds us. And even when we are brought into the fold, Becoming part of God's flock, we continue to make unwise decisions and we wander from the shepherd. So we're not as wise as we often think we are. So when someone tells us to believe in ourselves and to listen to our hearts, that's exactly the kind of thinking that's brought the world to where it is. If we look around, people listening to their hearts and believing in themselves, we have a mess. It's a terrible place to live in this world oftentimes. We're all... Dumb sheep messing everything up. Even the smartest person is a dumb sheep because all of us are prone to wander and head straight towards danger, that which is not good for us. But if we are this way, if we're constantly wandering, we're constantly doing dangerous things that lead us away from God, as Christians, we're not behaving the way that God tells us to live. And it's not just a, a matter of immoral things. We're not living, we're not focused on the things that God tells us to live. We're not loving people the way that Christ has told us to love because that's sin too. When we do that, we're straying from the shepherd. We're not listening to him. We're not letting him guide us in how we behave. So if we're like this, then what does that say about God as our shepherd? What does that say about his character? So what does shepherd do? Well, the shepherd is responsible for, one of the things they're responsible is for making sure the sheep gets water. Most of the time they were in a dry place in Israel. And uh, later on we'll talk about that and uh, show you where they were at. I've got a picture for that. But uh, most of the time they were in a dry place. And so sometimes the shepherd had to search for hours to find water for the sheep. Because most of the time they were on the move. 
And if they were lucky, they might find a well. But if you have a well, you have to fill a pail with, a, with, a, with water. And so it would take you time to water the sheep. It would take you a lot of time to water the sheep, depending on how big your flock is. And so they were responsible also for protecting the sheep day and night. So we hear this story, we hear the song of, uh, them, of in Bethlehem at night. They were guarding their flock by night. And so when Jesus says, I am the door, he's talking about protecting. When Jesus says, I am the door, he's talking about protecting the flock at the entrance of a gate. Um, and what that means in literal shepherding back then is that a shepherd would literally lay at the entrance of a cave between the sheep and the outside, becoming a living door, literally sacrificing his own body for the sheep so that they would still stay alive. It would be a barrier between the sheep and anything that would desire to come after the sheep would literally have to get through the shepherd to do so. And shepherds were well-trained to protect their sheep. A good example of that is David and Goliath, where he killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. So shepherds were patient. Shepherds were self-sacrificing. Shepherds met the needs of the sheep. And so David, who wrote this psalm, knew these things firsthand because he was a shepherd. He grew up shepherding his father's flock. Shepherds were oftentimes looked down on back then. Uh, People weren't very fond of shepherds. It was a very lowly position, a humbling position. If you remember the story of Joseph and his, and his father Jacob and his brothers, that uh, whenever they were going into Egypt, we, we find out that the Egyptians really did not like shepherds. They looked down on them. And so shepherds were looked down on by most people. And, and so most of us, if not all of us, would not be willing to do this job because it would mean being dirty. It would mean living with the sheep. It would mean being self-sacrificing and possibly having to give up our lives to protect a flock of dumb animals. And so that's exactly what Jesus did for the world. Gave up his life for many people to come to him, many of whom will not receive him. I don't know about you, but I don't know too many people in my life that is like that. That if I were to constantly wander and constantly stray, and I wasn't faithful to those who were in my life, and I just wanted to do my own thing, would affect my marriage. It would affect my relationship with my parents and all of my family and my friends. And as much as they love me, at some point they're going to let me go. And maybe pray that God would bring me back to the right path. And it's nothing against the love that they have for me. They would have to trust that God would do that. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. Because Jesus tells us that he leaves the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep that's gone astray. So when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, this is the image he's trying to paint for us. A God who guides, a God who protects and provides, a Savior who is the door willing to lay down his life for his sheep. You know? So the picture of this is that we are all dumb sheep and God still relentlessly loves us. And that doesn't make any sense until we consider what his character is and who he is. David goes on to say in verse 1, I shall not want. Some versions say I have all that I need. It's really the same thing. If you have all that you need, you're not going to want anything. Uh, Most people, many people. Um, 
I don't believe that David is primarily talking about basic needs, food, water, clothes, shelter. And the reason I don't think that is because oftentimes his psalm says something that directs us towards God as his desire. Psalm 61 verse 3 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Sheep need water, as we've talked about. But when David is talking about water in this, that he thirsts for God, he's not talking about literal water. He thirsts within his soul for God. And only God can quench that type of thirst. And we're reminded by that whenever Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 13 through 14. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about the well that they're setting at. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so we find that God has within him everything we could possibly need or want. And only he can satisfy the longings of our souls. Here in America, we have so many things. We have so many freedoms and so many things that we have that we can't tell the difference between wants and needs. We get those confused quite a bit. See a commercial come on about some sort of product. Oh, I need that. Well, not really. But most people have everything their hearts desire and they still want. You don't have to be rich to want sorts of things like that. You don't have to want expensive cars. You can chase your own heart's desires. It can seem stupid to someone else, but it's your desire for your heart to chase. And uh, once you've obtained it, you still want more. I know in my life, before I became a Christian, even sometimes in my life now, I chase down all of these things that I thought if I just had those things that I'll feel better. Going through some of the darkest times of my life, I just wanted something to make me feel better. And most people would say, well, why would you chase that? And I would agree with them now, but at the time I just thought if I had those things that I would be fine. And every time that I would obtain those things, I would always want more. I would always need something else. would always have to turn to something else. Because the world cannot satisfy what God can only satisfy. But David is telling us that I have the answer for that. When God is at the center of our lives, we have all that we need and we begin to want less. Because he provides as our shepherd. And he is good enough for our souls. So now David is going to list all the ways that God protects and provides. Um, Verse 2, he says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And so the first thing that he mentions here is called green pastures. And when we say this, most likely what comes to most of our, our minds are pastures that are full of green grass. Um, but I have a picture, uh, if, if Marcia, you could find that one, should be after that slide, a picture of the green grass, green pastures that were in Israel. Um, if you notice, it doesn't look very green, does it? But if you look closely, you can see, a shot, uh, you can see sheep being led across that. Very dry. And what happens is that on the western side of Israel, you're closer to the Mediterranean Sea, and so you get more rain, where on the eastern side of, the, of Israel, you get less rain. And it's estimated, I've heard one estimate is like, on the western side of Israel, they get maybe 25 inches annually, and on the eastern side, oftentimes they get 5 inches annually. And so what you have is that you have all this dry land, 
on the eastern side that doesn't get very much rain. And so when water humidity gets underneath the rock and, and the, uh, tiny patches of grass pop up everywhere, and that's how the sheep, sheep are fed. And so sheep would have to trust the shepherd because left to this type of environment without a shepherd, it would not last very long. And so you have to ask the question, why would David use this kind of illustration? Because this is exactly what he was seeing. This is on the eastern side of Bethlehem. It's around the period in the time where he shepherded his father's flock on the eastern side of Bethlehem. Why would he use this sort of imagery? It's not appealing to us. It doesn't seem like, why would I want to lay down in that? But the pastures that we tread in in life are not mostly green. We all know that. Those of us who have struggled in life and gone through things that have been difficult, we know that the pastures we lay in are not mostly green. And so you have people that have this idea in mind that all the pastures are green that they're talking about in this psalm. And then we're going through hard times and we're asking ourselves the question, well, where's my green pasture? All in the while, this is what David had in mind. We go through all sorts of pastures in our lives, and many of them are desolate. We go through difficult things, and we're surrounded by arid ground in our life, and the shepherd had to constantly move the sheep in order for them to be fed, would lead them from one tiny patch to the next tiny patch. And so we, as God's sheep, have to learn to rely on God to give us what we need when we need it. If we always have everything we want, as many of us in America do, we become less dependent on God's providence, as many of us in America have. So by writing this verse, that he makes me lie down in green pastures, David would have never meant to tell us that when you belong to God, everything is going to be fine in your life. He simply meant to tell us that even though things look grim and even though things are desperate in our lives, we need to trust God day by day because he knows what he's doing, even when we don't understand where he's taken us. He knows how to feed our souls. He knows where to find our food. Even when it seems to us like he's not providing for us. He will sustain us in the middle of the desert. He will lead us to the green pastures to provide food for our souls. And so, also, sheep don't lay down unless they feel completely secure. So the fact that David is saying he can lay down in a green pasture says that he finds security in God talks about still waters in that same verse. Uh, sheep aren't fans of loud noises. And so when David speaks of still waters, it, it allows for peacefulness as the shepherd waters the flocks. And so to lay down in green pastures and be led by streams of quiet water means that we find providence, security, and peace in trusting God. He grants peace in the middle of the not-so-green pastures. When we're unsure, God knows where he's going. And as we talked about earlier, watering the flock was not always easy. The shepherd had to find the water and often worked hard to provide it. And Jesus said to the woman at the well that he could give her living water and she would never thirst again. So we don't have to go to a well because Jesus quenches the thirst of our souls. If we search for something that quenches our souls outside of God and what he has planned for our lives, we will always need more. We will always be thirsty. Living water is the gift of eternal life and the presence of God in our lives. Through this, he restores our soul 
And by his words, he leads us down paths of righteousness. The question is, why does he lead us down paths of righteousness? Well, for his namesake. He promised to take care of those who put his kingdom and his righteousness first in their lives. That's Matthew 6, 33. He tells us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. And when we do this, we bring glory to his name. And we show God's goodness and faithfulness when we trust him. When we go down paths of righteousness, we reflect God's character, and that makes his name great. All of these things God does for his name's sake. Verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So when David talks about a valley, the word valley was often used to describe loneliness and danger. These are the moments when everything in our lives seem hopeless. We feel like giving up. We're full of fear. We feel completely alone. David tells us that the key to making it through these valleys is being aware of God's presence in our lives. Because he's aware of God's presence in his life, he is comforted. He will never leave us or forsake us. It's often hard to grasp that concept. That's why God had to constantly remind his people, because it's easy to forget. It's easy for me to forget. Especially when you're trusting in a God you can't see. It's easy to forget that he's with us when we can't see him. Sometimes when we're laying down in peace and everything's going well in our lives, we remember and we recognize that God is with us sometimes. Sometimes we become ungrateful in those moments and we fail to recognize that he's with us. But when things get hard, oftentimes we tend to forget that God is with us. David is saying that the key to being comforted is realizing that God is with us. But note how David is being comforted with a rod and a staff. These two items represent how God operates in the sheep's life. The rod is used to symbolize power and authority, so it's God's power and authority over our lives. The shepherd would sometimes use the rod to count the sheep as they were going by and check the condition of the sheep. And so it was used to fight off predators. It was used as a symbol of discipline. We hear the expression, he who spares the rod spoils the child, or another one that says, he who spares the rod hates the child. And so you have the rod, that's what the rod symbolizes, and then we have the staff. The shepherd's staff was quite a bit, was different in some ways, but sometimes it was interchangeable with the wording. Uh, Most likely what Moses was carrying as he was carrying his uh, fellow, he was following them out of Egypt, was more like a staff. Uh, so the staff might deliver or represent deliverance as well. And so the hook on the shepherd's staff would often be put around the sheep's neck and guide them to where they're going. So it represents guidance. So David has experienced all these things from God throughout his entire life. He's experienced God's power and authority. He was counted among God's people. And God has protected him from his enemies. He experienced God's deliverance, God's guidance, God's discipline. All those things led David to feel comfort knowing that God was with him. Even knowing that God disciplined him. Because God disciplines those who he loves. And he disciplines us so that we won't keep making the same mistakes in life and going off towards danger. 
So it's important to know what the rod and the staff meant because these are the things, the ways that God works in our lives. He expects us to submit to Him. We're called to submit to His authority and His guidance and, and His discipline, to trust that God will guide and protect, take care of us. If we don't become aware of God's presence in our lives and lean into that, it's hard to find trust and it's hard to avoid the fear in our lives. If we're not leaning into God, it's because we're not trusting and we're trusting ourselves. And that's the history of mankind, that mankind has trusted ourselves to guide ourselves. We should never trust our own hearts unless God is guiding our hearts. So verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. So a lot of us don't really have enemies per se. You know, we have people that annoy us or people that we annoy, maybe people that get mad at us, but most of the time we don't have enemies, at least not in the case that David had. David had people constantly trying to hunt him down and kill him. Um, He was king, and so being king of Israel, of a nation where you're having to protect your people, you're seizing land, uh, you have a a lot of enemies um, that you encounter. But any time Israel faced their enemies, they were told to be courageous. That's Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or don't be terrified or afraid of them. For the Lord your God is the one who will go with you. He will not leave or abandon you. And so the Bible tells us not to fear anyone. But he talks about a table. Uh, When it refers to a table, when David is talking about a table, he's referring to a banquet. At that banquet, typically you have an honored guest or someone who's being celebrated. In this case, David is referred to the honored guest, someone who is being celebrated, being anointed by God. David went from the illustration of referring to himself as a sheep to referring to himself as an honored guest. Two very different things. Jesus, who is the descendant of David, went from being a lamb despised by man, slaughtered for our sins, who sits on the right hand of God, who is anointed by God. God set David apart. He has exalted him as his servant. So if you think about it, normally at a banquet, you don't have your enemies present. Um, Normally you have people who support you and celebrate you. But David is telling us that he does not need people support him or validate him because God's presence, God's relationship with him is more valuable than any man's praise we could receive. The Bible tells us that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I think sometimes we need to recognize that David had a humble heart And that we don't humble ourselves to be exalted. We humble ourselves so that we can be closer to God. Sometimes it seems as we're walking the Christian life that um, it it gets complicated sometimes. And as we're looking out to the way the world lives, sometimes it seems better if we could just do the things that they're doing uh, because sometimes it seems harder to be a Christian. Um, But God is promising a day where he will honor us, just like David has talked about being honored. 
And so we might wonder, why on earth would God honor us like a David would at a banquet? And it's not because of anything that we've done that's good. It's because if we've put our faith in Jesus, we're closed in his righteousness. And so Jesus says in Luke 12, 37, he said, Blessed are the servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at a table and he will, become and so he will come and serve them. And so imagine that, that sometimes we don't think that God would uh, be a servant to us, uh, but Jesus is saying here to those, of the, those who belong to him, those who have been faithful to him, that he will serve us. So imagine our master, Jesus, serving us so that we can recline at a table. And that's something that we don't think about as something that Jesus would do for us. Jesus receives the most honor, yet he honors those who belong to him. Our God will one day prepare a table for those who belong to him. Not because we deserve it, but because God's great love, grace, and mercy. There's no other place in the world that you will find the master serving the servant simply because the master loves the servant. It's backwards to us because we are not like God. We don't know how to love like God does. Our love is shallow. And that's one of the things that I realized when I was studying this passage is not only that I realized how much God loves me, but then I looked at my love compared to God's love and I realized my love is incredibly shallow. Sometimes we think we're loving people, but we don't know how to love the way that God loves us until we are pointed out and God changes our hearts. But even then we struggle to love this kind of way that we would honor those who are beneath us sometimes. The shepherd serves the sheep. If we haven't got that image, he's calling God the shepherd, and the shepherd serves the sheep. That's what a shepherd does. That doesn't mean that we're greater than the shepherd, but this shows us how much greater the shepherd is than us, that we can't possibly fathom this type of love that God has for us. That even though we are sinners, sheep wandering far off, Jesus has laid down his life for us. Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is God. David may not have known the name of Jesus, but in essence, he knew him because he knew God. And everything in this scripture describes the character of Christ as we see in the New Testament. The same character that we find in this passage in the Old Testament, which many people claim to be as a passage in the Old Testament that the Old Testament God isn't very loving, is the exact characteristic that Jesus displays in the New Testament because Jesus, the Son, and the Father are one. The one who laid down his life so that we may be saved from death and separation of God. Jesus, who is the suffering servant, he was a shepherd, and at the, same time it be, at the same time that Jesus is a shepherd, he was also the lamb who takes away our sin, who loves and serves those who belong to him. That doesn't mean that we don't have to serve him, but he loves and serves those who belong to him. I don't know anyone in the entire world like this. It's such a unique concept, the love of God, the love of Christ, that I can't even really begin to comprehend it. And it's all for his name's sake, not ours. He doesn't honor us because we're worth anything. He honors us because that's who he is, and it's all for his namesake. He serves us to bring glory to his great name, exemplifying the nature of his great love. Verse 6, 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So to be in the house of the Lord meant to be in the presence of God. If you guys remember with the tabernacle and the temple, that they would make an offering to God and God's spirit would come down and it would be among them. That's what it means to be in the house of the Lord is to be present with God, to worship God, to love God and to have that communion with God, that relationship with God. And so to those who belong to God, we experience God's goodness every day of our lives when we don't wander. And even then we experience his goodness because he comes after us. Everyone who is on the outside looking in mocks God and talks about him as if he's evil and cruel. And again, you really have to not understand the message of the Old Testament and what it's saying to come to that conclusion. You have to cherry pick verses to point out God is, he was wrathful, he is wrathful, he's, he, he will pass judgment one day, but he gives us plenty of opportunity to turn to him. Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so this is why at the beginning when I talked about how I feel like I was wrong the last sermon that I gave is because, you know, you're really not going to trust God and let go of the fear and the anger and the bitterness in your life Unless you know how God loves you. That's what it says right here. God's love is meant to lead us into repentance. Because when we truly experience that, it changes our hearts. Because not a single one of us in here have felt that love outside of God. Because God's love for us is so unique. You can't experience it from your best friend, from your brother, from your sister, from your parents. You can't experience this kind of love. He continuously pours out his love when we don't deserve it. We wander off. He comes and finds us and brings us back. He continuously provides for us. At some point, many of the people in our lives are going to break their relationship off with us if we treated them like this. His love, his goodness is meant to cause us to trust him. And I believe that this is where revival starts. I think that when we experience the love that God has for us, I think the next step that happens is that we begin to love others that way when it really sinks into our hearts. And it's not just having a knowledge again, not as a fact, because we hear that a lot. Oh, God loves you, God loves you. Well, that's true, but has it really become real to us? Do we realize it? That's when it changed our hearts. It doesn't come by listening to one sermon or reading through this psalm by yourself one time. It really comes with digging into what it says and really meditating on God's love for your life. The fact that God is our shepherd is good news. Um, Because I can't tell you how many times that I've wandered off in my life, even as a Christian, chasing things that I thought if I could just have that and I get distracted. Because we live in a culture that tells us without these things in your life you can't be happy. And it makes us completely about ourselves. And when we become completely about ourselves, we stop trusting the shepherd and we wander. I've experienced the discipline of God many times in my life, the rod. All of that is to bring us back to him. And so the hopes is is that maybe we've thought about God's love a little deeper this morning. Uh, If anything valuable has been said um, out of his scripture 
uh, that that can start to become a seed in our hearts that grows and that that love for us um, is something that can change our hearts. Uh, love is not a feeling. Love is an action. We can have feelings that come with love, but love is not what we feel. We oftentimes tell each other when you're, uh, I remember in younger ages, whenever you're dating someone, you say, I love you. But a lot of times we really mean, I like the way you make me feel. Sometimes it's genuine love, but God's love is not the same. It's not about a feeling. It's not about how he makes us feel. It's realizing that he is with us in the valleys. He is with us, guiding us. He wants to protect us. He wants to provide for us. When we realize those things and trust him, that's when we experience his love. And so we're going to have a time of quiet prayer together. As the music plays, uh, that I would just encourage you to examine where you are with that. Have you really experienced that love in your life and maybe you've never given your life to Christ? Um, you don't know this kind of shepherd. I would encourage you to think about where you are in a relationship with him. So we'll have a few moments of quiet prayer.